Hi, I'm Father Gregory Pine. And I'm Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And you're listening to the Catholic Classics Podcast, where we seek to grow our prayer lives by learning from the Church's greatest saints and teachers. Spiritual reading can be challenging for many Catholics, so this podcast is here to help. Each season, we'll read through a great work, unpack its timeless wisdom, and encourage you with practical tips for the pursuit of holiness. The Catholic Classics Podcast is brought to you by Ascension. This season, we are reading Ascension's edition of Introduction to the Devout Life by St. Francis de Sales. To get your copy of the book and download the reading plan for this season, visit ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics or text INTRO to 33777. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast app. Today is day 19, and today we'll be reading Part 3, Certain Councils on the Practice of the Virtues, chapters 10 through 12, and those would be pages 227 to 238 in the Ascension edition of the book. Now, before we get into today's reading, a quick look at what we'll be covering today. So here, we're at a kind of hinge point in this part, in part three, uh, because we're beginning with humility, and then we're touching on meekness as a part of humility, and then now, at this stage, we're transitioning to obedience, chastity, and poverty. So remember, we began this part by saying, all right, let's treat the different virtues which will help us in our devout lives to become prayers, to become worshipers of God. And St. Francis said, we're going to highlight those things which might not show up on your radar, but are going to, you know, going to prove super important. And so he started with like patience and humility and then meekness as an aspect of humility. And now he's changing gears to obedience, chastity, and poverty. And for some of us, it's like, wait, what exactly are we doing here? So in this particular reading, we're going to be attentive to that transition. And then we're going to see how these three things, which we would ordinarily associate with religious life, actually apply to the lives of all Christians. So let's say a prayer and start in on the reading. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Grant us grace, a merciful God, to desire ardently all that is pleasing to thee, to examine it prudently, to acknowledge it truthfully, and to accomplish it perfectly. For the praise and glory of thy name. Amen. Chapter 10. That we must deal with the affairs of life diligently, but without eagerness or anxiety. The care and diligence that should mark our attention for the affairs of life are very different from solicitude, anxiety, and eagerness. The angels take care concerning our salvation and pursue it with diligence, yet they are never agitated by care, anxiety, or eagerness. For care and diligence naturally flow from their charity, whereas anxiety, eagerness, and troubled concern are utterly incompatible with their happiness, because care and diligence may be accompanied by a calm and tranquil state of mind, whereas anxiety and troubled concern, and still less eagerness, never can be. Be painstaking and diligent then, O Philothea, in all those affairs placed under your care. For since God has entrusted them to you, he wills that you should take great care to see that they are handled well. However, if possible, do not be anxious and overly solicitous about them. In other words, do not set about them with disquiet, anxiety, and haste. And do not be eager about your work, for eagerness always disturbs our reason and judgment, preventing us from properly performing the very task that we are doing with such eagerness. When our Lord admonished Martha, he said, quote, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, end quote. Luke 10, 41. Note that had she been simply painstaking and careful, she would not have been troubled. However, being overly solicitous and disquieted, she was eager and troubled, and this is why the Lord admonished her. 
Rivers that flow gently through the plains carry large vessels and rich merchandise, and rain that falls gently on the fields makes them fruitful in grass and corn, whereas rapid torrents and rivers inundate the country, overflow their banks, and are useless for travel, and heavy and tempestuous rains ruin both cornfield and meadow. So too, work done with too much eagerness and haste is never done well. Festina lente, make haste with slow leisure, as the old proverb runs. And in the words of Solomon, quote, he who makes haste with his feet misses his way, end quote, Proverbs 19.2. We always do our business soon enough when we do it well. Drones make more noise and fuss than worker bees. However, they make only wax, not honey. So too, they who hurry about with eager solicitude and noisy anxiety always do little and do it poorly. Just as flies trouble us not by their strength but by their great number, so too affairs of importance do not give us so much trouble as trivial ones when they are many in number. Take your affairs in hand quietly and try to do them in order one after another, for if you wish to do them all at once or in disarray, your efforts will so overcharge and depress your spirit that it will probably lie down under the burden without accomplishing anything. In all your affairs, rely wholly on God's providence. Through it alone will any of your undertakings find success. Nonetheless, for your own part, quietly strive to cooperate with it, and then you may be assured that if you trust as you ought in God, the ultimate outcome of your activity will always be that which is most profitable for you, whether it appears good or bad according to your own judgment. Be like a little child who with one hand holds tightly to his father and with the other gathers strawberries or blackberries along the hedges. For your part, while gathering and managing the goods of this world with one hand, hold fast with your other hand to that of your heavenly Father, turning to him from time to time to see whether your actions and occupations are pleasing to him. However, take heed above all things that you never let go his hand, thinking you should gather or collect more. For were he to let you go, you would not be able to take another step without falling. In other words, my dear Philothea, in the midst of ordinary affairs and occupations that do not require very earnest attention, you should look more to God than to your affairs, and when they are of such importance that they require your whole attention to do them properly, you should look to God from time to time like mariners who, in order that they might arrive at the port to which they are bound, look more up towards heaven than down in the sea upon which they are sailing. In this way, God will work with you, in you, and for you, and your labor shall be followed by consolation. Chapter 11 On Obedience Charity alone can place us in a state of perfection. Obedience, chastity, and poverty, however, are the three principal means for acquiring it. Obedience consecrates our will, chastity our body, and poverty our material means to the love and service of God. These are the three branches of the spiritual cross, all three being based on the fourth, which is humility. I shall say nothing about these three virtues as they apply to the lives of the solemnly vowed, for that concerns professed religious only nor even will I speak of them as they are practiced by those in simple vows. For although a vow adds many graces and merits to our virtues, nonetheless, to make us perfect, it is not necessary that they should be vowed so long as we observe them. Indeed, although being vowed to them, especially solemnly, places one in the state of perfection, nonetheless, in order to place him in perfection itself, they merely need to be observed. For there is only a material difference between the state of perfection and perfection itself. Indeed, all bishops and religious are in the state of perfection, but not all have arrived at perfection itself, as is all too easily seen. Let us strive then, my dear Philothea, to practice these virtues well, each according to his vocation. For even though they do not place us in the state of perfection, 
Nonetheless, they will make us perfect. Indeed, we all are obligated to practice these three virtues, though not all in the same way. There are two kinds of obedience, one necessary and the other voluntary. By necessary obedience, you are bound to obey your ecclesiastical superiors, such as the bishop, the parish priest, and certain people who are commissioned by them. Likewise, you must also obey your civil superiors, such as your sovereign and the magistrates who are put in authority under him. Finally, you must obey your domestic superiors, namely your father and mother, your master and mistress. This obedience is said to be necessary because no man can exempt himself from the duty of obeying these superiors, whom God has placed in authority to command and govern us, each in the domain assigned to him. Obey their commands, for this is of necessity. However, to be perfect, follow their counsels as well, and even their desires and inclinations, so far as charity and discretion will allow. Obey them when they order that which is agreeable, such as to eat or to take recreation, for although it seems no great virtue to obey on such occasions, it would be a great vice to disobey. Similarly, obey them in indifferent matters, such as to wear this or that dress, to go one way or another, to sing or be silent, and such obedience will be quite praiseworthy indeed. Also, obey them in hard, troublesome, and disagreeable matters, and such obedience will be perfect. Finally, obey meekly without reply, readily without delay, cheerfully without complaint, and above all, obey lovingly, for the love of him who, for our sake, quote, became obedient unto death, even death on a cross, unquote. Philippians 2.8, and who, as St. Bernard says, chose to part with his life rather than with obedience. That you may learn how to obey your superiors effectively, comply readily with the will of those who are equal to you yielding to their opinions and what is not wrong, without being contentious or obstinate. Accommodate yourself cheerfully to the desires of your inferiors as far as it is reasonable to do so, never exercising imperious authority over them, so long as they are good. It is an illusion to believe that, if we were vowed religious, we would obey with ease, when we find that we are defiant and stubborn in obedience to those whom God has placed over us. By voluntary obedience, our obligation is not imposed on us by someone else, but rather by ourselves. We do not, as a rule, choose our prince, our bishop, our mother or father, nor even do wives generally choose their husbands, but we choose our confessor and our spiritual director. And if, in so choosing, we make a vow to obey, as it is said the Holy Teresa did, who, besides the obedience, solemnly vowed to the superior of her order, also bound herself by a simple vow to obey Father Gratian, or if, without a vow, we dedicate ourselves to the obedience of anyone, this obedience is called voluntary, since it is grounded on our own free will and choice. We must obey all our superiors, each in accord with the kind of authority he has over us. In political matters, we must obey our prince, in ecclesiastical affairs, our prelates, in domestic affairs, our father, master, or husband, and in what pertains to the private conduct of the soul, our spiritual father or director. Request that your spiritual father order all the actions of piety you are able to perform, for they will be better performed and have double grace and goodness in themselves because they are works of piety, and also through the obedience that requires them and in virtue of which they are performed. Blessed are the obedient, for God will never permit them to go astray. Chapter 12. On Chastity. Chastity is the lily of virtues. It makes men almost equal to the angels. Nothing is beautiful except through its purity, and the purity of men is chastity. Chastity is called honesty, and the possession of it, honor. It is also called integrity, and its contrary, corruption. In short, it has the peculiar glory of being the beautiful and unspotted virtue of both soul and body. We are never permitted to draw any shameless pleasure from our hearts in any way whatsoever, except in the context of true marriage, 
which, through its sanctity, can justly compensate for the loss one receives through delight. And nonetheless, in marriage, too, an upright intention is needed, so that uprightness might remain in the will, even if there is some unbecoming sensuality in one's marital union. The chaste heart is like the mother of pearl, which can receive no water drops except those that come from heaven. For such a heart can accept no pleasure but that of marriage, which is ordained from heaven. Outside of that, one is not allowed so much as to think of such delights, taking voluntary and deliberate delight in such thoughts. For the first degree of this virtue, Philothea, take care not to admit any kind of prohibited and forbidden pleasure, such as all those taken outside of marriage, and even in marriage when they are taken contrary to the rule of marriage. For the second, refrain as much as possible from all useless and superfluous pleasures, even if they are lawful and permitted. For the third, do not have a heart set on pleasures and delights that are rightly ordained and commanded. For although we must take such delights as are necessary, I mean those concerned with the end and institution of holy matrimony, nonetheless, we must never set our heart and mind upon them. Moreover, everyone stands in great need of this virtue. They who are in a state of widowhood need courageous chastity to despise not only present or future objects, but also to resist recollections that the former pleasures permitted in marriage can produce in their minds, which, now as widows, are susceptible to being tempted by unbecoming thoughts. Thus, St. Augustine admired the purity of his friend Olypius, who had wholly forgotten and despised the pleasures of the flesh, which nevertheless he had experienced in his youth. Indeed, while fruits are whole and sound, they may be preserved, some in straw, some in sand, and some in their own leaves. However, once they are cut or bruised, it is almost impossible to preserve them except by means of honey and sugar as candies. So too, untainted chastity may be kept in many ways, but after it has been violated, nothing can preserve it but an extraordinary devotion, which, as I have often repeated, is the true honey and sugar of the spirit. Virgins need a chastity that is extremely innocent and delicate in order to banish from their hearts all kinds of curious thoughts and to despise with utter contempt all kinds of unclean pleasures, which, in truth, deserve not to be desired by men, since they are better enjoyed by asses and swine. Therefore, let these pure souls take heed never to forget that chastity is incomparably better than all that is incompatible with it. For as the great St. Jerome writes, the enemy violently presses upon virgins, trying to lead them to desire to try such carnal pleasures, making them out to be infinitely more pleasant than they are, often troubling them, quote, while they think that these things that they do not know of are indeed sweet, end quote. For just as the moth hovers with curiosity around a flame in order to see whether it is as sweet as it is beautiful, and then carried away with this thought, presses on until it is burnt up on its very first taste of the fire, so too, young people frequently allow themselves to be so possessed with a false and foolish opinion that they have concerning the pleasure of voluptuous desires, that after many curious thoughts, they at length ruin themselves and perish in the flames. In this, they are more foolish than such moths, for the latter have some reason to imagine that the fire is sweet, for it is so beautiful. However, such youths, knowing that which they seek to be extremely dishonorable, nonetheless do not cease to hold such brutish pleasure in high esteem. As for those who are married, it is most true, though the vulgar cannot imagine it to be true, that chastity is very necessary for them as well. For in their case, it consists not in abstaining absolutely from carnal pleasures, but in restraining themselves in the midst of pleasures. Now, as the commandment, quote, be angry, but sin not, end quote, Psalm 4, is, in my opinion, more difficult than, quote, be not angry, end quote, and as one may more easily keep from anger than regulate it, 
so too it is easier to keep ourselves from carnal pleasures than to preserve moderation in them. It is true that the holy liberty of marriage has a peculiar force to extinguish the fire of concupiscence, but the frailty of those who enjoy this liberty passes easily from permission to usurpation and from use to abuse. And just as we see many rich men steal, not out of need but out of avarice, so too we may observe many married people who exceed virtuous limits by mere intemperance and lack of self-restraint, going beyond the lawful bounds within which they should have kept their desires, their concupiscence being like a wildfire burning here and there, without resting in any one place. It is always dangerous to take very strong medicines, for if we take more than we should, or if they are not well prepared, they may be attended by fatal consequences. Marriage was blessed and ordained in part as a remedy for concupiscence, and doubtless it is a very good remedy for it. But nonetheless, it is also quite strong too, and consequently very dangerous if it be not used with discretion. I likewise add that various human affairs, in addition to long diseases, often separate husbands from their wives. Therefore, married people have need of two kinds of chastity, the one for absolute abstinence when they are separated on such occasions, and the other for moderation when they are together in the ordinary course of life. St. Catherine of Siena saw among the damned many souls grievously tormented for having violated the sanctity of marriage, which took place, she said, not because of the enormity of the sin, for murders and blasphemies are more enormous, but because they take no heed of it in conscience and consequently make it their long practice. You see, then, that chastity is necessary for all walks of life. Quote, strive for peace with all men, quote, says the apostle, quote, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, end quote. Hebrews 12, 14. Now, here, holiness is understood as meaning chastity, as St. Jerome and St. John Chrysostom say. No, Philothea, no one shall see God without chastity. No one shall dwell in his holy tabernacle if he is not clean of heart. Psalm 15, 2 and 24, 4. And as our Savior himself says, quote, outside are the dogs and fornicators, end quote. Revelation 22, 15. And, quote, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. End quote. Matthew 5, 8. In this section, we have seen a few themes emerge. And seeing as we've already talked a bit about humility and we've talked a bit about meekness, we're probably going to talk here mostly about those evangelical counsels, which we have heard described as obedience, chastity, and poverty. We call them the evangelical counsels in the context of the religious life, but it turns out that these represent an invitation posed to all Christians. So they're part of what it means for us to be Christian, to be a baptized person. And we can think of Matthew 19 and our Lord's exchange with the rich young man. You have that recounted also in the Gospels of Mark and Luke, but that he calls him to leave all that he has behind and to come follow after him. And specifically in the Gospel of Matthew, that comes right after a discussion with the apostles where he's describing marriage and its difficulties. And the apostles say, maybe it's better that we don't get married. He says, well, some are called to be eunuchs for the kingdom. So already there, you have these three you know, evangelical councils described of poverty, chastity, and obedience, but not just for religious, but for all Christians, insofar as they represent a way for all of us to grow in our intimacy, to grow in our relationship, our friendship with the Lord, and then on the basis of that, to be kind of drawn more deeply into the implications of our baptism. All right, so Father Jacob Bertrand, we're talking then about practicing obedience, chastity, and poverty in spirit on the basis of these councils that St. Francis de Sales describes. What do you think are some good principles that we can distill or some, some good arguments that we can tease out when it comes to living these in our Christian lives? 
Yeah, I remember when I was discerning and applying to to the to the order to be a Dominican. Um, and then I've had similar reactions for people who are unfamiliar with religious life, even since I've been in the order of, you know, when the reality of our consecrated life of being consecrated, making, professing a life of obedience, chastity and poverty, people being super confused. It's like, why would you want to do that? Why would you want to give up? What's the point, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that leads to what you've described as a sort of mentality of like, this is only, this way of life is only for a select few. And it's kind of a really weird thing that some people do, but that's not the case. Um, It's not the case at all, in fact, because religious life, those men and women, those sisters, brothers, priests who profess these vows, religious life is a sort of outgrowth or a, a, a different way, a deeper way of living our baptismal graces. So in virtue of all of being baptized, the grace that we receive in baptism conforms us to Christ and makes us his adopted sons and daughters through baptism. And part of our confirmation to Christ is the confirmation or the call to live these counsels, obedience, chastity, poverty. So it begs the question though, like why? Why do that? And the simplest, the easiest and answer and the, and the place to start, I think, is because this is how Christ lived. Christ was obedient to the Father. We see this throughout the Gospels. He even says this about himself in the Gospels. Christ was chaste. He was unmarried. Christ was poor. Think of where he was born. Think of the Christmas story. Think of how he died, you know, stripped and on the cross. So in living these, we're called to be conformed to Christ. And ultimately, as St. Francis de Sales is teaching us and talking about, that's the point of the devout life. So, of course, granted, you know, not all Christians live these counsels in the same way. It's different for a religious than it is for a married person or a single person, but we're we're called to live them if you're not consecrated, at least in spirit, to have a spirit of obedience to the church, to the church's teachings, to our legitimate superiors and authorities, to live a life of chastity, of integrated sexuality, to live a life of, of, of poverty, of, of spirit of poverty, of not being attached to, to things um, too much. So ultimately, though, it's, it's a conformity to Christ. They help us teach us how to how to be christian really so three aspects of these virtues which we call evangelical counsels in the context of the religious life but we can describe them as you know poverty of spirit chastity of spirit and obedience of spirit as it pertains to all christians um so three ways in which they facilitate or three ways in which they encourage us to live our christian lives more perfectly are one they actually heal the effects of sin Two, they help us to kind of set aside certain secondary goods, which would threaten to get in the way of our pursuit of the one necessary good, which is to say God himself. And then three, they represent a way whereby we offer our lives back to God. So maybe I'll just talk about the first one and then send it back to you for the second and third. So with respect to the first, the healing power of these virtues. So on account of the fact that we come into this world in a state of original sin, we're not bad, but we're like a little bit bent. And so we don't always relate with ourselves, with our God, with our brothers and sisters in a way that's entirely healthy. We tend to use people, um, you know, and this would represent a kind of threat to chastity. We tend to get really acquisitive, right? We try to like amass possessions because it makes us feel good. You have a hard day at work, you're sad, you're anxious, you go on Amazon, you just put a bunch of things in your basket and you just send them to your house. You're like, retail therapy, let's go for it. 
Um, and then when it comes to obedience, again, our hearts are just a little bit clouded with a preferential option for ourselves. Somebody suggests something to us, we're like, not a chance in the world. Not only are you dumb, you're evil and I hate you, uh, which is a fascinating move. But by embracing the spirit of poverty, the spirit of chastity, the spirit of obedience, we begin to look to the Lord to instruct us in the way of his virtues so that some of that acquisitiveness, some of that manipulation, some of that rebellion would start to get resolved. All right, so then maybe thinking about the way that it helps us to deal healthily with secondary goods or the way that it offers our lives back to God. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, when we talk about goods, um, we we could really think of them in terms of like of what the the heart is after. You know, we're made for what is good, true, and beautiful, and and we pursue those things because we're attracted to them. But there's an ordering of goods in the world. So at the high, the highest, the greatest good is is God. Um, the the goods that are sort of ordered underneath, it doesn't mean that they're that they're not goods, that the only good thing is God. God is goodness, but there are other good things. We can think of like family love. We can th- go down the list. We can think of like a great meal, like those sort of things. But there's a proper ordering. If we begin to desire like a cheeseburger over God, we're, we're, we're running into some trouble here. So these, these um, virtues of poverty, chastity, and obedience help us have a proper relationship with secondary goods that we might, you know, pursue God over a cheeseburger, though we can pursue a cheeseburger in, in its proper way. And so too with higher things, with with love of neighbor, with with like spousal love, you know, these kind of things that helps us have an appropriate relation with the created things of this world, um, even the good things, but also the bad things, you know, things we should avoid. And then the, the, this last point of offering ourselves to God, well, um, this is the whole point of the Christian life, right? That we give God ourselves. Uh, and these virtues of poverty, chastity, and obedience help us to do that. Poverty in our, again, as in our relation to the created world, that we, you know, we give ourselves from that to God. And chastity, that our, that we live our sexuality in ways appropriate to our state in life. And obedience, that we're obedient to, to him, to our legitimate superiors, that it's a sort of, through living these, we offer who we are to him, to be perfected, transformed, healed, elevated, all of these, all of these things that are at the heart of the Christian life. So maybe just two small images to illumine those two points, things that I'm thinking of right now. One, with respect to offering our whole selves, sometimes in the Christian tradition, you hear saints describe the offering of the Christian back to God as a Holocaust offering, which sounds a little scary at the outset, but fear not. Uh, So in the Old Covenant, all these different ways in which to offer an offering. And when you would do that, you would typically give, you know, part to God, part to the priest, you take part for yourself. But in the Holocaust offering, you give the whole thing to God because God is the creator of the whole thing. He's the end of the whole thing. He's worthy of the whole thing. And I think in our Christian lives, we seek to make an offering of our whole heart's love to God, who is its creator and end, and who is worthy of all of it. And then with respect to you know secondary goods, because we're Christian, that means that we don't indulge in everything. And not just we don't indulge in sinful things. Sometimes we don't indulge in good things because we want to be faithful to our spouse who comes in search of us. And that's for for all persons, whether you're single or widowed or married or whatever. You know, it's just the Lord wants you. The Lord loves you. And I think here of the example from the Odyssey, where Odysseus has been 10 years at war, and now he's 10 years on the high seas getting lost and trapped and this, that, and the other. And all the while, his wife is waiting for him. Penelope is very faithful, and she's very wise. And so you've got all these different suitors who are coming to Ithaca, who are trying to, you know, like, well, they're trying to marry her. Uh, but she remains faithful to Odysseus because she knows that he's he's coming back, and so you know she she has to be 
She has to be shrewd about it. She has to be cunning about it. She weaves her tapestry, and each night she unweaves it, telling her suitors that she'll be ready to marry just as soon as the tapestry is done. But all the while, she's remaining faithful. And I think that for us, you know, we have all these different suitors in our life, all of these different goods who demand our attention, who seek to kind of get us involved in a sort of marriage. But we keep them off. We hold them off at arm's length because what we really want is God. Because at the end of the day, he represents our whole heart's love, even in the context of marriage. You know, you can look at your spouse and say, you're wonderful, but you're not the whole thing because you mediate to me the presence of the whole thing. And I'm made for the whole thing, which is to say I'm made for, I'm made for the Lord. All right. So those are just two images. Father Jacob Bertrand, you have maybe like a parting thought about one of these aspects, obedience or chastity or poverty. I think about all all of them as a whole. I think they're, you know, perhaps for most Christians, it's not they're not things we think about in living the Christian life. For us religious, for consecrated religious, it's kind of what we are, what we do. So it's always on our mind. But uh, thinking about what St. Francis de Sales writes about these things ought to be a moment to consider like, well, how do I, how, what is my relationship like with obedience? What is my relationship like with chastity? What is my relationship like with poverty, material things, these, and, and use this, use what St. Francis is teaching us about the devout life as a moment to sort of assess or reassess, um, and, and ask our Lord for the grace to live them better, not just once, but always to be more conformed to him through, through these virtues. All right. Well, that's it for today. Thanks so much for tuning in. Be sure to follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts. And then again, to download the reading plan and to support the production of this podcast, please visit ascensionpress.com slash Catholic Classics. So know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us and we will catch you next time on Catholic Classics. Mm -hmm.